And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to our show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at two finales. Uh, we took a look at Godzilla vs. Destoroya from 1995, of course, the finale and the final film of the Heisei series of films. And we also took a look at Marvel Godzilla number 24, which was the final issue of Marvel Godzilla, so the final issue of that series. This time out, we're going to be taking a look at 1968's Destroy All Monsters, a monster mashup romp, which is a favorite of many Showa fans. Also, we're going to be taking a look at uh, Avengers Volume 1, number 197, which is going to start our look at Marvel Godzilla characters' appearances in other books. Uh, in this case, we're going to be uh, focusing on Red Ronin. Uh, a little bit of news before we get into that. Uh, hat tip to fellow Two True Freaks podcaster in front of the show, Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix who sent me a picture of the upcoming King Ghidorah Halloween costume in support of the upcoming release of Godzilla King of the Monsters this May. Now, much like most of us have done when playing as King Ghidorah, the costume actually uses the wearer's hands as the left and right head heads of King Ghidorah and has a tall headpiece, which is worn on top of the wearer's head to make the middle head. Essentially, you look out of the middle neck. There's a, a screen, kind of silky screen thing that you can look through in the middle neck. Uh, I imagine that your arms would get very tired over the course of a Halloween party or a night of trick-or-treating. Uh, the simple fact that this costume even exists fills my monster-loving heart with joy. Uh, just absolutely uh, amazing and ridiculous at the same time. And as Gene says, you can always just let the other heads wiggle and waggle around like in a Showa film if your arms get tired. So thank you very much to Gene for sending that along. In anime news, the Netflix Ultraman anime, still building towards its worldwide release on April 1st, 2019. Uh, no fooling, even though it's April Fool's Day, but all 13 episodes will drop on that date in this Subaraya adaptation of the manga which is itself an update of the original series. Now, this uh, the manga, and I'm uh, assuming the anime based on what we've seen, follows the adventures of Shin Hayata's son, Shinjiro, and his journey after discovering that he possesses strange powers due to his unique heritage. Now, I am very much looking forward to this series and hoping that at 30 minutes apiece, I'll be able to binge watch the series and eventually, of course, cover it here on the, on the show. I've enjoyed what I've read of the manga, and I'm eager to see... Uh, the anime, which looks very interesting, a sort of mix of CG and cell animation, and looks very fitting for uh, an adaptation of the manga. Now, in more anime news, Mazinger Z Infinity is out on Homita in the U.S. by the time you are listening to this podcast. Now, uh, Mazinger Z Infinity is a 2018 feature film adaptation of the classic manga and anime Mazinger Z who, of course, was part of the Shogun Warriors line of toys 
here in the States. Now, the film is available from Viz Media on both Blu-ray and DVD, and both versions feature English or Japanese dialogue along with removable English subtitles, which is rapidly becoming the standard, I find, for both tokusatsu and anime releases here in the U.S., which is a wonderful um, trend as far as I'm concerned. Now, the Blu-ray also includes some exclusive behind-the-scenes interviews with the production staff as well as the English dub cast, which could be pretty interesting. Uh, the film looks like a lot of fun. I remember it being very well received by fans when it was released theatrically last year. Uh, I, I have not had a chance to see it. I've, I've seen bits and pieces of Mazinger Z over the years. I've never read the manga, but this does look like a, uh, a neat way to get it in one feature film and hat tip to sci-fi Japan for this bit of news. Uh, that's all I've got as far as news. If you have something, please send it in. Uh, Earth Destruction Directive at Yahoo.com if you've got a piece of news that uh, fits what we talk about here, and you will get credit here on the show as we pass it along. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and get into Destroy All Monsters right here on Earth Destruction Directive. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. Because you demanded it. It's Treasury Cast, a podcast devoted to the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. DC, Marvel, Archie, IDW, and more, bigger than life. It's the Treasury Cast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and on fireandwaterpodcast.com. All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Destroy All Monsters was released on August 1st, 1968 in Japan under the title Kaiju Shoshingeki, which translates to Charge of the Monsters, Monsters All Out Attack, Monster Total Advancement. There are several translations of that phrase. The film made its way over to the United States on May 23rd, 1969, courtesy of American International Pictures. Our writers were Koru Mibichi. Now, Mibichi's real name is Takeshi Kimura, and under that name he wrote Rodan, King Kong Escapes, The Mysterians. He also wrote Frankenstein Conquers the World and War of the Gargantuas, and this was co-written with Ishiro Honda. Our special effects are by Teisho Arakawa with supervision by Eji Tsuburaya. Our music is by Akira Ifukube. Our director is Ishiro Honda, and our producer is Tomoyuki Tanaka. And our synopsis comes courtesy of Wikipedia. At the close of the 20th century, all of Earth's giant monsters have been collected by the United Nations Science Committee and confined in an area known as Monsterland, located in the Ogasawara Island chain. A special control center is constructed underneath the island to ensure that the monsters stay secure and to serve as a research facility to study them. When communications with Monsterland are suddenly and mysteriously severed and all of the monsters begin attacking world capitals, Godzilla attacks New York City, Rodan invades Moscow, Mothra lays waste to Beijing, Gorosaurus destroys Paris, and Manda attacks London. Dr. Yoshida of the UNSC orders Captain Katsuo Yamabe and the crew of his spaceship Moonlight SY-3 to investigate Ogasawara. There, they discover that the scientists, led by Dr. Otani, have become mind-controlled slaves of a feminine alien race identifying themselves as the Kilaks, who reveal that they are in control of the monsters. 
Their leader, the Kilak Queen, demands that the human race surrender or face total annihilation. The monster attacks were set in motion to draw attention away from Japan so that the aliens can establish an underground stronghold near Mount Fuji. The Kilaks then turn their next major attack onto Tokyo, and without serious opposition become arrogant in their aims until the UNSC discover, after recovering the Kilaks' monster mind control devices from around the world, that they have switched to broadcasting and control signals from their base under the moon's surface. In a desperate battle, the crew of the SY-3 destroys the Kilaks' lunar outpost and returns the alien control system to Earth. With all of the monsters under the control of the UNSC, the Kilaks unleash their hidden weapon, King Ghidorah. The three-headed space monster is dispatched to protect the alien stronghold at Mount Fuji, and battles Godzilla, Minya, Mothra, Rodan, Gorosaurus, Anguirus, and Akuamunga. While seemingly invincible, King Ghidorah is eventually overpowered by the combined strength of the Earth monsters and is killed. Refusing to admit defeat, the Kilaks produce their trump card, a burning monster they call the Fire Dragon, which begins to torch Tokyo and destroys the control center on Ogasawara. Suddenly, Godzilla attacks and destroys the Kilaks' underground base, revealing that the Earth's monsters instinctively knew who their enemies are. Captain Yamabe then pursues the Fire Dragon, the SY-3, and narrowly achieves a victory for the human race, as the Fire Dragon is revealed to be a flaming Kilak saucer and is destroyed. Godzilla and the other monsters, now free, eventually return to Monsterland to live in peace. Uh, Destroy Monsters, a, a very popular film in the fandom, and uh, a very well-known title as well. It's just such a, a great and evocative title that a lot of people are, are aware of this one. So how does it hold up? Well, why don't we get into the notes and we'll see. So in 1968, Toho was faced with the reality that ticket sales for the Godzilla series had been on a, a decline. Now, this is oddly symmetrical with the film we discussed last time, Godzilla vs. Destoroyah, where we had kind of the same situation. Now, there was some discussion of actually ending the series at this point. As such, Destroy All Monsters is generally seen as something of a last hurrah for the series as it had existed at, up till this point in the 1960s. Uh, beginning with King Kong vs. Godzilla being the first one in color that kind of kick-started the, the, what we typically think of as the Golden Age show of films. Now, of course, the series would continue on uh, for more films until the show of series finally ended in 1974. We would get a total of five more films after this. We would get uh, All Monsters Attack, a.k.a. Godzilla's Revenge, and then Smog Monster, Gigan, um, actually six films, I guess, Smog Monster, Gigan, Megalon, and then the two Mechagodzillas, uh, before the series finally stopped uh, for its original run. Now, Honda and Kimura developed the script together, which is the first one not at least partially written by traditional Godzilla screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa since 1955 with Godzilla Raids Again. So, while some of Sekizawa's standard tropes, including strange juices, <laughs> are not present, the script still does include such of uh, Sekizawa's standbys as an alien invasion, monsters as weapons of mass destructions, and a tropical island, albeit, in this case, Ogasawara Island does not play much of a role as a setting outside of the beginning and the end. Now, Kimura preferred to write darker stories with political overtones. So, for material which he considered merely work-for-hire, like Destroy All Monsters, he wrote under a pen name. And his pen name is specifically ambiguous, because the pen name of uh, Koru, as a first name, in Japanese, can be either a man or a woman. So, this was kind of his way of keeping his anonymity for some of this stuff. Now, Honda was primarily fascinated with the idea of a home for the monsters, where they could be housed and studied. And 
So it's generally considered that Honda's contributions to the script went into great detail on how this would work, including how to supply enough food for the monsters to eat in order to survive. Now, unfortunately, sadly, little of this makes it into the finished film, with the narrator paying lip service to the idea and Rodan seen fishing a dolphin out of the water for a snack very early on. While the details fell by the wayside, the very idea of a monster island would be born out of this very conceit and become a major part of Daikaiju lore and tropes going forward, to the point that the next film in the series, which is All Monsters Attack, is primarily set on Monster Island, and even outside of the Toho pantheon of monsters, generally we think of a an, an island somewhere in the Pacific where all the monsters live, really can be traced um, mainly here to destroy all monsters. Now, Destroy All Monsters did decently at the box office, but was not a breakthrough hit. It sold 2.6 million tickets, which was up slightly from Son of Godzilla's 2.5 million the previous year, but still a far cry from the films earlier in the decade. Uh, a similar alien invasion film, Monster Zero, sold 3.8 million tickets only three years prior. So there was changes coming at the Godzilla series, but this uh, and, and the, the <coughs> lack of breakthrough success of Destroy All Monsters kind of heralded that. Now, getting into specific notes, we open the film with a narration and a series of shots showing us Ogasawara Island and how it works. There's plenty of big miniatures, bigatures they're called nowadays, and models in this scene, which is really quite lovely. We get some support helicopters, always a favorite of mine, and we do see the launch of SY-3, which has always to be been a bit reminiscent of the launch shots of P-1 from Monster Zero. The narrator actually goes into some detail of the monsters housed at Monsterland, uh, he does call Angurus Angulus in the dub, which actually is his much more common Showa English name as far as uh, dubs. They, uh, for, there, there was a while where they wanted to call him Ang Toho wanted to call him Angulus, and so that's what he is called here. Our narrator also informs us that the monsters are kept on the island by, quote, scientific walls. And we actually see this in action as Mothra, who is a caterpillar in this film, is uh, tries to leave the island and go out into the water, but is repelled by gas dispensers and forced to turn around. We also get the scene that I referenced earlier, where Rodan dives down and snags a dolphin, which we see him carrying back to land, as the narrator tells us that Rodan is allowed limited space to fly and that there is plenty of food for the monsters to eat. The scene of Rodan with the dolphin is pretty charming. It always reminds me of baby Rodan eating the Mega Neuron in 1956 in Rodan. Uh, but considering the film was also written by Kimura, that connection makes sense, the idea of showing them eating. Now, overall, this opening and the world it sets up is, is quite nice. And while it is destined not to last for the purposes of our film, as a monster fan, I'd always thought that if this, in fact, was the final fate of the monsters, to live in peace on an island where man only studies them instead of trying to kill them, that indeed would be a fitting end cap to their story. I also like the the idea of cohabitation, that perhaps there is enough room on the earth for man and monster to both live peacefully. These are very Japanese ideas, and uh, I, I think that for a series of Japanese monster films, having this type of theme is very appropriate and very much appreciated. Now we next meet our island staff, uh, ostensibly manned by the UN, but primarily Asian in makeup. Now, of course, there are a few blondes thrown in for good measure, at least. Here we meet Dr. Otani, who is the head of the island, and Kyoko, a new research assistant, and girlfriend to Katsuo, who was the captain of the SY-3. Katsuo is played by Akira Kubo, and in his first scene he makes a joke at Kyoko's expense, the sort of roguish charmer character Kubo typically plays. Now as the film progresses, though, Katsuo becomes a harder character, not what we normally think of for Kubo, 
over the course of this series, where he tends to play a hero, but more of a lighter, a lighter hero, whereas here he's a bit more hard-bitten. Our film has absolutely no time to spare, and so within ten minutes, the island is under siege, with both the human staff and the monster inhabitants gassed. This leads directly to reports from around the globe of various major cities being under attack by monsters. Now, amusingly, the news reports in the dub are all done by appropriately accented reporters speaking English. Moscow is reported on in English with a Russian accent, Paris with a French accent, and so forth. These scenes are quick cuts, but getting to see some different cities and architecture represented is quite refreshing. We see uh, Rodan flying over uh, Russia. Not clearly, uh, it's a model of Moscow looking like uh, the Kremlin or Red Square. Now, two notes out of this. Firstly, we are told, but not shown, that Mothra is attacking Beiping, which we would now call Beijing. Now, this was the accepted name for the city for international use until the late 1970s, and was what the U.S. government officially referred to the city as until at least the late 1960s. This makes for an interesting, if completely unforeseeable, continuity error, as by 1999, when this film takes place, the city was known worldwide as Beijing. Now, of course, that one is entirely forgivable. There's no way they could have predicted that. Now, more noteworthy to monster fans is that we are told that Paris is being attacked by Baragon. In fact, we do see the Arc de Triomphe being destroyed by a monster burrowing out from under it. This monster, though, is Gorosaurus, last seen in King Kong Escapes, who now apparently can burrow underground. The script called for Baragon to play this role, but his suit was in a state of disrepair for being pressed into service as various monsters over on Ultraman, and there was just no budget for a new suit to be made of him. So, Gorosaurus stands in here, and we can only assume that the finer details of Daikaiju etymology is lost on our Parisian reporter. But Baragon's lack of involvement will come up again later in the film as well. And as an aside, the other monster attack we do not see is Manda invading London, which is a shame, as I have this mental image of Manda wrapping himself around Big Ben. You know, perhaps it's best that it only exists in the unlimited budget of my mind, because it'll always look good that way. We then move to the SY-3, which has a close encounter with what we will later learn is a Keylock UFO. Now, much to my delight, Keylock UFOs make the same sound as Exian UFOs, as the Showa flying saucer sound is a longtime personal favorite of mine. Now, SY-3 is a heavier design than P-1, which, uh, again, is from Monster Zero. More fins and ridges compared to the sleeker P-1. It looks for all the world to me like a mixture of P-1 with Ultra Hawk 1 from Ultra 7, which is a machine more designed for combat than exploration. And this jives with, with the crew, who wear slimmer, inexplicably orange spacesuits, and carry weapons. Of course, uh, Fuji and Glenn did not carry weapons with them when they were uh, you know, UN astronauts that were explorers. Well, and while Katsuo's crew, they do in fact work for the UN Science Committee, it seems to me that many years of monster attacks and alien invasions in this world have influenced this group, and thus they're more prepared for things going sideways. This does come in handy as SY3 is dispatched to investigate Ogasawara Island, and the crew ends up in a legit shootout with the Kelak-controlled staff, which includes one controlled staffer getting shot in the head. Ouch. Now, during this conflict, Katsuo and company capture Dr. Otani, who is then interrogated at a seaside hotel. Now, in the dub, he is asked directly if he has been brainwashed. Now, having never been brainwashed, that I'm aware of, would you be able to answer that trust that question truthfully if you were? And if you were and you said no, how could you trust the answer? 
It seems to me like interrogation techniques has not advanced much in this far-flung future time. In any event, it doesn't lead to much as the doctor shortly jumps out of the window committing suicide. And this harsh event seems like a throwback to Honda's earlier films, which would involve more human violence. This trend continues as another shootout then breaks out over Dr. Otani's body, with Keelak agents trying and failing to keep the UN from recovering the body. Again, this sort of gunplay violence, though bloodless, was more in line with the level of human violence we got in films such as Ghidorah, where Malness tries repeatedly to kill the princess. Here, it has more of a TV level of gunplay, similar to Tokusatsu shows from the same era, but still a marked change from the last couple of entries, which didn't have this sort of uh, material. From here, Dr. Otani is autopsied on screen. Again, pretty sanitized, but does seem a big departure uh, a year after Son of Godzilla. Now, this scene serves to reveal that the Keelocks control their slaves via a microchip implant. As we all know, no honest earthling would ever betray their home planet. I personally imagine that this particular scene would play differently in 2019, but that's neither here nor there. Now, this development and this discovery of the implant, in turn, leads to the discovery of Keelac transmitters hidden all over the world, including, amusingly enough, inside of a coconut on a tropical island. While retrieving one of the transmitters from the Japanese mountainside, the SY3 crew interacts with the locals, who are bizarrely dubbed with American hillbilly voices. I guess the intention is country bumpkin, as is something of a stereotype for folks from the mountain in Japan. Although now, now that I think about it, it's some, pretty much the same as it is here in the U.S. insofar as a stereotype about folks who live on the side of a mountain. Just a little strange, and not, not entirely PC, but eh, it was 1968. Now with their methods revealed, the Keelux now attack Tokyo. Did we really think a movie about aliens using monsters to invade Earth would spare Tokyo? Mm, me neither. It gets the biggest array of monsters of all the cities attacked, as Godzilla, Rodan, Manda, and Mothra all attack the city. Now, Manda looks a bit different from his turn in Atragon. Yes, we will cover Atragon eventually here on Earth Destruction Directive. We haven't gotten there yet. But Manda has lost the horns on his head, and he ends up looking more snake-like than dragon-like as a result. He still has his little his little uh, legs, uh, so he is still uh, supposed to be an Asian dragon, but the horns does change his look a little, or the lack of horns does change his look a little bit. This scene also has a pretty impressive amount of JSDF hardware being rolled out with missile launchers, batteries, rockets, and the like all being thrown at the monsters. It's an impressive effects scene with lots of moving parts and a fair bit of detailed city modeling. During the carnage, there is a quick shot of Kyoko, whom the police are actually looking for, walking the opposite direction of everyone else, observing the destruction while the populace flees. This shot actually is in the U.S. trailer. And it's very subtle. It's very effective in showing the sheer confidence of the Kelex in their plan, which seems to be their main trait, is their supreme, un unswerving confidence that they are going to win. So I like that it's we're, we're shown here. Now, most of the time, we're just told this by the things that either Kyoko or the Kelex Queen tell us. But here, it's a, a more subtle bit of filmmaking. The attack on Tokyo ends with a pan shot showcasing all the rubble. I do not know if this was intentional, but for all the world, this reminds me of the similar pan shot of the result of Godzilla's rampage in Tokyo from 1954, what now makes up the first scene in Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956, which features Raymond Burr's narration. Uh, just the slow pan showing all the results of the monster's attack. Undaunted by this, the UN continues their efforts to find the Keylock base, which they do in the Izu Hot Springs, which they say are guarded by Baragon. Now, when the SY3 investigates... 
They instead find Godzilla. Now the story goes that this was Baragon's big scene as the so-called guard dog for the Keylocks. But Godzilla was swapped in for the ailing Baragon when the suit was unable to perform as needed. We see more evidence of this when the UN mobilizes a full-scale attack, and SY3 is unable to land because Godzilla blasts him with atomic breath. Baragon, of course, has a fiery breath attack of his own, which would fit in this scene as well. Furthermore, Godzilla appears to be at least partially underground, further suggesting that the scene was blocked out for Baragon, with the idea that maybe he crawled up from underneath the base and was still partially underground when he was blasting at the SY3. Now, please feel free to replace Godzilla with Baragon in this scene in your mind. Lord knows I do. Now, the UN slash JSDF roll out another impressively mounted effect sequence, with large numbers of military vehicles plus the SY3 being showcased in long overhead shots showing just how big the overall model work is. There's also a really nice double exposure shot where an armored truck, which is a model, rolls up to the camera and soldiers deploy from around the rear and then run into the foreground, obviously a live-action plate. That's a simple enough composite, but it's really well done and really well executed. Even on a digital format now, it still looks very, uh, very clean, and it's very well done. The fight between the monsters in the military is short, uh, with Godzilla and Anguirus making short work of the ground vehicles, and SY3 actually being chased away by Rodan, which I, I quite like. I would have loved to see Rodan take it out of the sky, uh, but there's a few more SY3 scenes left in the film, so we can't have Rodan go the whole hog and destroy it. Now, the precursor to this whole scene of the UN attacking the base actually has Kyoko simply striding into the UN headquarters and declaring that Kilak cannot be defeated, which leads Katsuo to grab her and rip her earrings off. Yikes. The earrings, of course, are the control chips by which Kyoko is controlled. But this scene is bloody and violent and has always been off-putting to me. There's some deeper symbolism here, which speaks to the Showa era in Japan in general, with a woman behaving in a bad way because of an outside influence and needing to be brought back into line by the strong guiding hand of her man. I won't go into it more than that, but this bit of violence against a woman by the supposed hero of the film does not and never has sit well with me. Afterwards, Kyoko essentially disappears from the film. Like other Showa films, the most interesting females are often evil or mind-controlled in this case. So it's disappointing that she starts out as a uh, you know capable research assistant that got you know a job working at Ogaswara Island. She gets taken over by the Keylocks, turns into an interesting villain for a while, and then she becomes uh, set dressing after a man puts her in her place. Now, that, that's never really, I, that's never done it for me, and I don't like that bit. Now, at this point in the film, the story starts to unravel some, as lo especially in the dub, as locations and times become a bit more fluid. Uh, SY3 attacks the Keylock's moon base. They're trying to stop the waves being transmitted, which control the monsters. So, were the waves from the moon being retransmitted by the transmitters on Earth? Were those just receivers creating a sort of field effect? Were they transmitting from Earth and then they stopped? And because they found all the transmitters, now they're transmitting from the moon. I'm frankly not sure. And even more frankly, I'm not sure that it really matters. Katsuo and his team blast in with the SY3, and it, it's a it's a big action sequence. The main thing is I've got to shut this thing down. The details of it really aren't that important. Very similar to the way we kind of look at other popcorn uh, action-adventure films nowadays. Uh, now, as they invade in with the SY3, there's a series of flame projectors... Uh, pop out and shoot flames at it in order to block them from disembarking. So our heroes instead launch the treaded ground car, 
which, much like SY3 itself, looks like a vehicle from the Ultra Guard's arsenal. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have put this past, um, you know, Ultra Guard rolling out with one of these to go investigate a monster attack before uh, Ultra 7 showed up. Uh, they blast their way into the main control room, and when they do that, the key locks shrivel up into what look like, for all I can think, like Cybermats from Doctor Who, like little silvery worms. Uh, they then turn into small silvery rocks, and we're told that the key locks require hot climates, and letting in the cold of space has driven them into a sort of hibernation. Um, I mean, I guess it's better than them gunning down women <laughs> to, to do it this way. I mean, it's uh, that might have been a bridge too far, even for a film which features the hero ripping the earrings out of his girlfriend's ears, but, you know, that is what it is. Now, with no resistance, the crew then decides that uh, somehow decides that one particular piece of shiny equipment in this room full of shiny equipment must be the one they're looking for, and they use all of their power on a cutting torch to destroy it. Uh, it it's, it's a really kind of intense scene because they keep cutting on this torch, and it's using so much uh, electrical energy, it's actually setting all the cabling and stuff on fire. It's very dramatic. Adding to that is Ifakube has an absolutely great theme here. It's oddly not used anywhere else in the film. Obviously, this scene is very important for the story, and this piece of music makes it all the more dramatic and memorable. Now, with the waves shut down, the UN is able to, naturally, begin controlling the monsters themselves thanks to their investigation of Keylock technology. Wait, wait, what? Yeah, you heard right. Not content to simply let the monsters do their own thing, the UN now has their own monsters of mass destruction at their beck and call. So what do they do? Nothing less than a massive assault on a Keylock Earth base with all the monsters to put an end to this threat once and for all, of course. The Keylocks also realize that things just got real, so they play their trump card, which is King Ghidorah, and he arrives on Earth to defend his latest set of masters, because Lord knows King Ghidorah likes to work for alien invaders, leading to the big fight that we've all been waiting for. Now, two notes before the battle itself. One, we get more narration here, which actually turns out to be diegetic as it is coming from a reporter on the scene. He gives us a rundown of all the monsters as they arrive, telling us about the arrival of Minya, Godzilla, Mothra, Anguirus, Manda, Baragon, Gorosaurus, Spiga, and Rodan. Notice the use of the, the names that were common in the Showa era at the time there. Now, Manda and Baragon are barely there. They're barely visible behind a big hill, and Manda already looks like he's about to fall apart, sadly. I mean... His head is barely being held up, and Baragon is, you just kind of see him peeking around. Now, at the very end of this bit, Varon, Varon, the unbelievable, actually comes floating down for a landing next to the rest of the crew, but is not mentioned by the reporter. Varon essentially stealth cameos this movie, as he does not take part in the fight and is never mentioned by name. So, he's there, you know, he's part of it, he's one of the monsters, but he's, you know, he just kind of got it, came in, you know, uh, did his time, grabbed a sandwich from the uh, commissary table and hit the deck. Uh, secondly, in this scene, as King Ghidorah is deployed, the Keylock Queen says, Ghidorah is a space monster. The monsters from Earth cannot win. The monsters from Earth cannot win, which actually was the inspiration for the line, they are sure to defeat your Earth monsters, which you hear in the intro of every episode of this show. Uh, that, that line always stuck with me, and I wanted to do a kind of an homage to that when I did the Earth Destruction Directive opening where it is an alien invader telling the Earth that they cannot win, that their monsters cannot win the battle. So I, I, it always amuses me to hear that because it was such a big inspiration to me. The gigantic monster battle is the most well-known and beloved part of this film, 
and with good reason. There is nothing which approaches this level of monster interaction and combat in the Showa era. It would be many years later before we came close to that again with Godzilla Final Wars, but even that film does not have this large of a scale of a single combat. Every monster except the aforementioned Baragon, Manda, and Varan get in on the action and have at least one scene to show their stuff. King Ghidorah starts things off by flying over everyone. We get to see uh, a very high shot of all the monsters standing on the set and then landing full suit in the frame, which is really something considering the weight of that suit. Normally we don't see King Ghidorah land that way, but it's very impressive. Rodan gets in early using his wings to buffet his old nemesis with hurricane winds before taking off. Things then quickly turn to close quarters combat with Anguirus chomping down on King Ghidorah's ankle. King Ghidorah counters this by taking off with Angie still holding on by his teeth, dangling off of King Ghidorah's foot. Oh my. One of King Ghidorah's heads then snakes down and bites at Angie, which sends him crashing down to earth. And then King, King Ghidorah lands on Anguirus's back and jumps up and down, stomping on him. This action inadvertently ends up revealing the Keylock base, which was buried underground. Now, I really like this. Monsters, even when under mind control, can be hard to predict. And so I doubt that the Keylock Queen figured on her secret base being revealed in this way. There's also a nice shot here of King Ghidorah jumping off of the back of Anguirus, similar to how he landed earlier in the fight. So they were willing to, you know, get a few guys and really heft that suit up to get him uh, off the ground. Now from here, the tide begins to turn on King Ghidorah as the Earth monsters use their far superior numbers to their advantage. Gorosaurus shows off his kangaroo kick. Remember that from King Kong Escapes? Hitting King Ghidorah right in the small of the back. Now, once King Ghidorah is on the ground, he's in trouble. Godzilla stomps and whoops on one of his heads repeatedly. Anguirus attacks another head. Mothra and Spiga shoot silk and webbing on King Ghidorah to immobilize him. Gorosaurus then chomps down on one of his tails. And then, as if adding insult to injury, Minya shoots atomic smoke rings at the third head. With blood spurting out of the mouth that Godzilla's stomping on, King Ghidorah is soundly defeated, and from his complete lack of movement following his death throes, he really looks like he is dead, and he's not moving. This is I take this to be the death of King Ghidorah. Now, this entire sequence, with so many suit actors and so many wires going this way and that, the sheer logistics of filming this scene are hard to fathom. One can easily imagine that if this was, in fact, to be the end of the Godzilla series, that this was meant to be the be-all end-all monster fight scene. And while the rest of the film is pretty uneven for the most part, this sequence, which lasts pretty much a solid, uninterrupted six straight minutes, which is quite a lot for uninterrupted monster scenes, is justifiably well-regarded and extremely memorable. Folks, this is special stuff right here. Now, the capper of this entire scene comes when Minya comes up and puts his foot on the fallen King Ghidorah's back in victory. So even among all this monster carnage, a little humor... Still okay. Now, with King Ghidorah defeated, a new threat emerges, the Fire Dragon. Now, this fast-flying ball of fire chases down Rodan and then attacks Ogasawara Island, knocking out the UN's control of the monsters. That works out okay, because the monsters already know the Keelaks are the enemy and attack their base anyway. Now, the Keelak Queen here, she finally starts to realize she's in trouble as Godzilla literally smashes his way into the base. Uh, but it's too late. The base is decimated. The Keelax are killed, turned into the little silver spheres, just like their, uh, their compatriots on the moon by the cold air. I have to give the queen credit, though. She never once doubts that she will win, even as her plans literally crumble around her. She has a lot more composure in the face of setbacks and the controller of Planet X, 
who starts ranting and raving about escaping through time itself and all that nonsense. Anyway, this leaves SY3 to deal with Fire Dragon, attacking it with conveniently loaded cold missiles. Fire Dragon is aggressive, though, and latches onto the back of SY3, which forces Katsuo to try and shake it off with uh, erratic flying. Now, this is, of course, the Star Trek method of erratic flying, with a lot of shaking the camera back and forth and people wagging their heads. Uh, Fire Dragon's eventually revealed to be a UFO, um, which we had already seen a Keylock UFO a few times. SY3 shoots it down, thus ending the Keylock threat for good. Now, with the Keylocks all dead and gone, peace can reign once again, and we see all the monsters back at Monsterland on Ogasawara Island. The epilogue is pretty straightforward, as we see our heroes flying over in a helicopter, and we see all the Earth monsters safe in their new home. We see Mothra and Gorosaurus. We see Anguirus. We see Spiga, Kuamanga, whatever you want to call him. We see Baragon looking better in this scene than he does for the entire rest of the film, scratching at the ground and roaring. I, I am assuming this shot was shot first, before they, um, or, or, you know, just with, when the suit was in the best possible shape. Because he does look good, and it's it's when you see this, it's a little disappointing that Barragon doesn't play a role in the rest of the film because he's such a cool monster. Manda also looking better than in the fight scene, so again, I'm assuming this was shot very early on. Uh, Rodan, Varan taking off from behind a mountain and gliding out of the frame, and since Varan only existed at this point as a flying puppet, we don't actually see him actually standing on the ground, just flying away. Uh, then Minya, and finally Godzilla. The camera pulls back, the soundtrack swells, and that's the end. Well, as I had said earlier, if this truly was to be the end of the line for Godzilla and the rest of the Toho monsters, as an adult fan, I really appreciate it. Seeing the monsters live peacefully on an isolated island is a good, fair, and just ending for them. Of course, it was not to be, but taken on its own terms, you can still read it that way if you choose. And of course, as all the other Showa films chronologically take place before Destroy All Monsters, that little bit of headcanon works just fine if you want to do it. Overall, Destroy All Monsters is a good film, but the plot just runs off the rails at a certain point, and the whole thing is reduced to sci-fi spectacle. I mean, I'm not expecting Godzilla 54 here, but I find that Destroy All Monsters compares negatively in nearly all aspects to Monster Zero, which remains the alien invasion film of the Godzilla series. There's still a lot to like here, though. Plenty of creative and well-executed monster scenes and miniatures being the real high points. No film in this era comes anywhere near close to the monster mayhem of Destroy All Monsters, and that it is accomplished with so little reliance on stock footage cannot be praised enough. And while it is not of the same quality as the ones which came before it, as the last hurrah before the fairly rapid decline of the 1970s, it's a heck of a way to spend an afternoon on the couch, even if afterwards you might find yourself in one or two, yeah, but how moments. So, if you're, if you're enjoy Godzilla, and the rest of the Toho monster films, you will definitely enjoy Destroy All Monsters, even if it does have a few flaws. If you would like to own Destroy All Monsters, the Tokyo Shock DVD and Blu-ray releases are the most readily available. Now, this release from 2014 does not have the original AIP dub, but instead has Toho's international dub. Now, this rubs some fans the wrong way, those that grew up with the AIP dub. The out-of-print Tokyo Shock DVD from 2011 which uh, draws around $100 online that I've seen, has this AIP dub. So I think this was part of the problem, is that AIP uh, dubbed disc went out of print, and then when they did a new version, they changed the dub. I, for one, don't have a particularly strong attachment to either dub, as I did not see Destroy All Monsters until I was a teenager, um, owing to the fact that it has an extremely spotty VHS history. This was one of the films that I ended up getting a, uh, a bootleg of at a convention 
when I was about 12 or 13. Um, now, additionally, you can find two DVD releases for Destroy All Monsters from ADV, one from 2000 and one from 2004. These are not demonstrably better than the Tokyo Shock releases, um, but the 2004 release is notable because it is packed with the soundtrack on CD. And this was the first time that I bought Destroy All Monsters on DVD was that set with the CD in it. So currently, I have both the Tokyo Shock 2014 Blu-ray and the ADV 2004 DVD, the latter primarily for the soundtrack. But I actually have them racked right next to each other on my shelf. Uh, you can also get it on Amazon Prime Video if you prefer to stream. Um, I think it's like $3.99 to rent and $19.99 to buy, uh, which is about the same as a Blu-ray and a bit more than a DVD. So um, if you like physical media, you have options. If you like streaming, you have options too. So what did you folks think? What do you guys think about, uh, guys and girls, think about Destroy All Monsters? Do you think it's uh, worthy of the great reputation that it has? Do you think it just falls off the rails too much to, to really enjoy? Do you just like seeing monsters wailing on each other? Uh, write it in. Let me know. Or at DestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. We'll talk about it here on the show. Uh, I, I was glad just to get a chance to watch it. I, I say that about all these films. It, it gives me an excuse to rewatch a film that I've seen many times and to really look at it and, and uh, you know, try and understand deep down about it. So I appreciated that. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Alright, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Avengers Volume 1, number 197, was cover dated July 1980 and released on or about April 15, 1980. As always, this information comes from Mike's amazing world of comics. Our cover is by George Perez and it looks kind of like a magazine cover. It shows four uh, smaller inset images. Uh, what really goes on at Avengers Mansion is the copy. And uh, just various little scenes here. Uh, our writer is David Michelini. Our penciler, Carmine Infantino. The inker is credited to Jack's Little Helpers. Uh, there are, uh, the, the note here says, Occasional Avengers inker Jack Abel has been laid up as of late, and as a result, a bunch of his pen-pushing pals have volunteered their services this issue to help him out. Who did what? We're still not sure. But any of you no-price-hungry Marvelites are welcome to guess. And um, I, I looked to see if I could find 
the, you know, who did what, and I really couldn't find a good listing of that, but you can tell there's several inkers working on this just from the styles. Uh, the letterer is John Costanza, the colorist is Bob Sharon, and our editor is Jim Salakrup. The title is Prelude to War Devil, and our synopsis is adapted from marvel.wikia.com. The Avengers experience an unaccustomed period of relaxation after defeating the Taskmaster in their previous outing. Jocasta is elated at the promise that she will be nominated for team membership. Iron Man decides to step down as chairman. The Beast wrangles Wonder Man into a disastrous blind date. And Ms. Marvel visits the Scarlet Witch, who is still on leave at the Jersey Shore. When Ms. Marvel becomes ill and passes out, Wanda takes her to a hospital where they are both stunned to learn that Carol is three months pregnant. Meanwhile, at Stark International, Dr. Earl Cohen, a scientist working on the restoration of the giant robot Red Ronin, steals the automaton and takes off, promising to start World War III. Uh, about a year after the end of the Godzilla series, one of the dangling plot threads, which is what happened to Red Ronin after the Mega Monsters battle, is picked up over in Avengers in a, a fairly low-key issue. Uh, how does it go? I think it goes pretty well, but let's get into the notes and we can hash it out ourselves. The cover, as I said, looks like a gossip magazine, uh, like you might see, especially in the 80s, I'm a grocery checkout. There's copy teasing the events in the issue, as I said at the top, uh, what really goes on at Avengers Mansion. You see Avengers After Hours, which is a scene of Wonder Man and the Beast uh, at on their blind date. It's not a great cover, it's not certainly not one of the more memorable or iconic Avengers covers from the era, but given that there are the multiple story threads here, and there's really not a lot of action, it works well for the story that the comic is telling. So it, it's a, it's a well-suited cover, even if it's not one that really jumps uh, out at your eye as, you're, as you uh, flip through it. Page one, the splash page, is Avengers Mansion, and that's it. Now it's a wonderful rendition of the mansion, with each individual window lovingly picked out by Infantino and well, whichever anchor did this page, but there's, there's nothing else to it. It's just a picture of the mansion, us looking at it from the gate towards the front door. So all we've got is that and one line of dialogue, which is wonderful. It just says, ah, nuts, which is something I find myself saying very frequently. Uh, now over on pages two and three, this is a scene of the Avengers actually stuck in their elevator. Now, Michelini uses this technique a few times this issue, uh, where he uses kind of run-of-the-mill domestic life to allow for insight into the characters just from their uh, their small comments or their thought balloons. Uh, here we get Wonder Man saying he gets edgy in closed spaces, which, again, you know, when figure he was in a coffin for how long. Uh, now, our team of Avengers this time includes Iron Man, the Beast, uh, Ant-Man, Scott Lang, Wasp, Yellow Jacket, Vision, Captain America, Wonder Man, and Jocasta. Uh, so pretty, pretty powerful lineup of Avengers there for sure. Now, Jarvis wins this segment by <laughs> being ready with a tray of seltzer water and aspirin for the Avengers after they get out of the elevator. Jarvis is the man. He always, uh, knows what to do. Now, pages six and seven were introduced to Red Roan in this story, and he's been under repairs at Stark International in Detroit. Now, SI, that would be the only place in the U.S. where Red Ronin could be repaired. And you'll remember that Red Ronin was designed and built at least partially by Stark, uh, Stark International. So it's a nice, um, uh, you know, callback that Stark would have the ability to, to work on something like this. Um, 
page seven panel one has a great, is a great panel. It takes up the entire height of the page and half the width. And, um, it shows the towering height of Red Ronin over Dr. Cowan and his assistant, Mr. Karnowski, uh, who Cohen whomps on the head a few panels later with a, um, with a, a spanner. Um, in a book like Avengers, uh, you know, I, I don't think the readers always get giant robots or monsters. You know, typically the Avengers villains are, you know, maybe big guys, like, you know, hulking size guys, but not necessarily gigantic monsters or gigantic robots. So this panel, it's very well executed to show us just how big Red Ronin is relative to the heroes of the series that the readers would be more familiar with. Over on uh, page 10, Iron Man nominates Jocasta as a full-time Avenger. Now, I don't really know where this story goes from here, as this is an era of Avengers where my reading is pretty spotty. But I like this scene, uh, and I like this whole segment, because Jocasta is currently an employee of Stark Unlimited in the pages of Tony Stark Iron Man, the current volume of Iron Man uh, by Dan Slott that started, oh, about uh, six, seven months ago as we're recording this. So I like that even as far back here as 1980, Tony seemingly recognizes Jocasta's value as a co-worker as well as respects her as an autonomous being. Uh, now, Jocasta's role at Stark Unlimited is a chief robotic ethicist, uh, where she ensures that uh, AIs are always treated with the rights and respect inherent to living beings. So I thought it was uh, a nice bit of symmetry. Now, I don't know if this is something that maybe Slot went back to uh, this era, where Iron Man and Jocasta were um, interacting with each other to pick up that, but actually, I, I thought it was a nice, uh, a nice bit of symmetry, as I said, and uh, I really enjoyed that little segment because of it. Uh, over on page eleven, panel one, one of Back to the Bins, Paul Spataro and Doctor Bill Robinson's absolute favorites, as the Vision heats up coffee using the gem on his forehead. Mwah, mwah, mwah. We now turn over to pages 14 and 15, where we get big-time movie star Ms. Marvel and uh, Wanda Maximoff on the Jersey Shore. Now, Carol's dialogue is very on the nose about motherhood. And given the events of this issue, that's not surprising. Uh, you know, she was still very much in her, you know, um, I guess, uh, <laughs> men writing a strong feminist era at this point. Um, but you know, you have to foreshadow with her talking about that. Uh, uh, you know, she says to Wanda, surely you find, uh, she goes, you're a vital person, Wanda. One half, one that half the women in the world would probably kill to be. Surely you find that more fulfilling than any silly stereotypes about having a baby. So you have to have that kind of dialogue because of course we're going to swerve it at the end. And uh, as we all know, uh, Carol's pregnancy works out just fine with no problems ever, right? Moving on. Uh, over onto now page 16, Iron Man steps down as chairman, saying Tony Stark has a lot on his plate. Now, the concurrent issue of Iron Man, published this month, is 136, where Iron Man battles the legendary villain Endotherm. Yeah, not so much. Now, in any event, this this era is right in the middle of the first uh, Bob and Dave, Bob Layton and Dave Michelinie, run. And I assume that Dave took Shellhead off the table in this book so that he did not have to worry about balancing his appearances, as there is some real globe-trotting stuff coming up in the next few months in Iron Man. Uh, but I do like that. It's one of those one of those things that, um, you know, sometimes when things get a little too hairy in the solo book, you've got to drop out of the team book, because uh, back when people cared a lot about continuity, they were like, well, how can Thor be here if he's in... Jotunheim fighting against these people. How can he be fighting Kang on the streets of Manhattan? And we don't want that. So, 
over now onto page 19 as Ant-Man heads out. Wasp seduces Yellow Jacket. <laughs> Remember when Hank and Jan were still like a real couple? Uh, in any event, <laughs> that notwithstanding, I do like that these two are here in this story, if only because they did play a role in the back half of the Godzilla series with the Pym Particles, and they did factor into issue 23 as well. So I do like seeing Hank and Jan here, um, you know, the uh, their romantic entanglements notwithstanding. Over on to page 22 and 23, um, Beast has set up Simon on a blind date, and Simon's date, Candy Brown, is initially, she's very appealing to Simon. He says, oh, wow, she, she looks good. This could be a lot of fun. Uh, but then he discovers that Candy has brought along her son when their babysitter canceled at the last minute. So Simon basically becomes the plaything for the kid who is like climbing on him and he's you know, wrapped around his neck and hanging on his back. And uh, and Simon gives a really, really kind of sideways look at Hank McCoy. And it's comedy, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we've got here. Uh, let's, let's, I don't know, uh, the name Candy Brown rings a bell, but I, I don't remember if she's a character that we see going forward. And to be honest, I did not look it up. So I guess we'll find out as we uh, continue on, at least for the next couple of issues over onto page 27, uh, Dr. Cowan absconds with the red Ronin. Uh, I like in this scene, Michelini uses the cyber helmet control interface to control red Ronin. And Dr. Cowan specifically says, that only he can pilot it thanks to the modifications he made to the control helmet. So uh, that's a callback, of course, to uh, Rob Takaguchi taking Red Ronin and yeah, the control helmet being imprinted to his brainwaves and all that. Uh, great setup here. This is the last, um, th this leads into the very end of the story. A great setup here. Even if it's not the actual cliffhanger, the issue, that falls to Wanda finding out that Carol is three months pregnant. Uh, with Carol in tears over it. Uh, that is, of course, less important to what we're talking about here, which is the Red Ronin. But great idea. I mean, uh, someone with a, a machine, a mecha like Red Ronin, could cause untold damage. And this guy's saying that he specifically wants to go and the, the very, uh, the, the, what he calls the ultimate goal, the regrettable but very necessary instigation of World War III. That really is a lot of menace and danger that the Avengers are going to have to deal with. Uh, the bullpen's bulletins page on the soapbox, uh, Stan Lee is hyping up Epic Illustrated, which has just launched. Uh, the mighty Marvel checklist is absolutely gigantic. It covers the entire page, leaving no room for any bulletins whatsoever. Uh, there's a house ad on the bottom of the page, which hypes Marvel's most mind boggling heroes, Machine Man and Man Thing. Uh, now this, uh, stood out to me because Machine Man, of course, is the ex-husband of Jocasta. And has also been appearing in the pages of Tony Stark Iron Man over the last few months. So the little just <laughs> little things like that to just make the connections in my brain. Uh, the letters page, it addresses a printing error which made an African-American character appear white in a recent issue. Uh, there's also a letter writer who asked that they remove Cap and Iron Man from the Avengers and, quote, pay more attention to them in their own mags and come up with more subtle plots and interesting sagas which would maybe bring a bit of life to these monotonous characters, end quote. Ouch. Now that leads, I love this, that leads Dave Michelinie to respond, actually, as the writer of the Iron Man comic book, I thought the plots were subtle, and the sagas were interesting. <laughs> Dude, if you come to Dave Michelinie, you better come proper. That's all I gotta say about that, so. <laughs> um... 
overall, it's a transitional issue for the Avengers. I thought it was a good read uh, in that context. I like Michelinie's format of using uh, m- many one- and two-page scenes to give little look-ins on all of the characters and focus on the emotional states of the characters in lieu of wedging in an action sequence uh, just for the sake of action. Now, the setup for the next issue with Red Ronin is very intriguing, and I am curious how this particular set of Avengers will take on a giant robot of Red Ronin's strength and arsenal. We've got some heavy hitters here, like the Vision and... Iron Man and Wonder Man, but we don't have Thor. Uh, you know, we don't have uh, some of the, the, the you know, maybe uh, some of the guys that might be better suited to this. So it should be interesting to see how they do that. The art was inconsistent, thanks to the many inkers, uh, but not unpleasant for the most part. And I would rather have a many hands approach on a book like this, which has many different sequences and scene changes rather than one that's telling one really tight story. This has a lot of different areas. So the change in inkers is not as noticeable unless you're looking for it. Uh, with with a few exceptions. Uh, not a bad issue at all, even if it's a little offbeat from what I normally uh, expect from an Avengers comic. Now, I'm definitely looking forward to 198, and we'll be covering that next time, so we'll we'll move on from there. Now, if you would like to read this, this is collected in Essential Avengers Volume 9. It is also included in Marvel Masterworks Ms. Marvel, the 2014 hardcover Volume 2. So, very interesting there. Uh, taking a, a quick, quick flip through, we get the saga of Johnny West on the inside front cover. Um, Whoppers get a Camp Cook kit. Uh, we get the uh, Marvel House ad for the um, uh, subscription ad. We get titles such as Crazy, Howard the Duck, Marvel Preview, Savage Sword, The Hulk, Tomb of Dry. There's some interesting choices here uh, on this. Um, let's see. Uh, most of these ads we, we've seen before. We do get these. These MPC models can turn your room into the black hole. Um, very, very, it's an interesting ad in that I love the images of the Cygnus, Vincent, and Maximilian, but because it turns your room into the black hole, the kid, the kid on his bed, his chest of drawers, and his pajamas are also flying into the black hole. Uh, the Cygnus model is two feet long. That just sounds awesome. I've never seen any of these in person. I'm a huge black hole fan. That would be neat. I don't know. I guess you'd have to hang the Cygnus if it's, uh, two feet long, but that suits the Cygnus. Oh, uh, we get the house ad for Rom, which is the full page, um, Sal Buscema drawn, um, uh, shot of him crashing into the earth and coming up out of the ground. Nothing can stop him. Rom Space Knight. Uh, we get some fun and games, uh, house ad for fun and games, which, uh, um, uh, Stan was talking about kind of the last time we did Godzilla, I want to say. Uh, we've got Spider-Man fighting the tarantula, which is from an early issue of Spectacular. We've got Reed Richards tangling with, uh, with Doctor Doom, obviously from an issue of, of Fantastic Four. Very nice. Oh, we get the hodgepodge ad, movie projector. Um, now we do get a hostess ad. We get the thing in Sunday Punch. And I don't believe we've done this one, so I think we might have to do a dramatic reading. And our story goes a little something like this. A quiet Sunday. Or is it? Sheesh. I go out for some goodies and look what I run into. I am programmed to destroy. Not me, you ain't. Ugh! My Sunday punch ain't doing much. You will not stop me. I'll just have to get serious. But I gotta get these rubberneckers to safety first. But how? Got it! A surefire attraction. Hey, Hostess Fruit Pies! Real fruit filling! Apple Cherry Peach! Light Tender Crust! Wow! They'll be so busy eating, they'll stay out of my way. Walk, crunch, stop! 
There ain't nothing left of that guy but a ton of bricks. But there ain't nothing left of the hostess fruit pies for me either. You win one, you lose one. You get a big delight in every bite of hostess fruit pies. Uh, I love the thing. And I love the fact that the thing went out on a Sunday morning to get hostess fruit pies. Uh, it, 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 it at least addresses why he has them, which these, these little hostess ads usually don't address. Uh, and I love that he's got enough that we can see at least 10 that he's thrown out to the crowd. So, you know, the thing is probably cleaned out the local bodega convenience store he went to of their fruit pies and just gave them out. So, but that's, that's the big hearted ever loving thing. So, uh, and I do like that. It does have on, for this show, the, the monster he is fighting appears to be like a building come to life because he looks like he has windows all over him. And then he's just a pile of bricks at the end. Uh, so a neat little pseudo earth destruction directive, uh, hostess ad here. Um, and then we got the Daisy 840 <laughs> gone on the inside back cover. So, uh, that's all we've got for Avengers 197. What did you think of this issue? I said a little offbeat as a transitional issue, but I still thought it was a good read. Why don't you send me in some feedback and we'll talk about it here on the show, Earth Destruction Directive at yahoo.com. All right, I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be back to wrap up the show right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And it's time for a little bit of a listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also hit me up on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, all the ways to get in touch are in the outro to the show. So let's get right into it. Our first email comes from good friend of the show, Mr. Adam Tebow, and his subject is Revenge of Belial. And Adam writes, Hey Luke, as I was listening to the latest episode about Ultraman Zero, Revenge of Belial, I couldn't help mentally adding Glenn Ross every time you mentioned Glenn Fire and wondering if Ultra Power was only for closers. Those connections our minds make sometimes. Now I have also taken to saying Glenn Fire, Glenn Ross. Thank you very much, Adam. Uh, anyhow, this movie has a special place in my heart because we watched it at Joe's place during that fateful weekend where you corrupted me into the tokusatsu nerd monster I am today. Again, I hope you're proud of yourself. Love the show as always. Keep them stomping. Adam Tebow. And yes, uh, we did watch this. We watched, um, my friend Joe and I, we were, we were big into tokusatsu anyway. Adam was a little bit kind of a skeptic and we were watching, um, watching the Ultraman Zero. Uh, movie and yeah <laughs> it went downhill from there for adam or uphill i guess depending on on your perspective i think his wife would probably say downhill uh but um hey you know what if if this stuff wasn't quality you wouldn't have gotten into it you know and all you needed was just the opportunity to be exposed to it and then see the breadth and depth of the stuff available 
And, uh, you know, it does go, it's the same as with comics or with anime or anything else. Uh, once you're exposed to something that has been around for as long as this has, you're going to find something that you like in it, uh, most likely. And, um, and you're just going to run with it. So Adam has been a, a big supporter and big friend of the show for a long time. One of my closest friends, IRL. So thank you very much, Adam. Always appreciate hearing from you and, uh, glad to see I can still contribute to your corruption after all these years. So. Uh, our next email is from Robert Ward and is entitled, uh, email volume two. And, uh, <laughs> Robert writes, dear Luke, are you freaking kidding me? Uh, I hope not. I usually try to be honest with everybody here on the show days, just days before your latest episode dropped. I discovered and watched the revenge of Belial. It's been a while, but there was once a post by you. I believe that I commented on that for the first time. I watched Ultraman. I wish I could find that post again because after I mentioned how I really dug the more stylistic episodes that proved Ultraman was more than what I assumed, you gave some suggestions where I should continue because the franchise is so overwhelming from the outside. Sadly, I haven't done any more digging into the franchise until Revenge of Belial, although I have been collecting what I can. I plan to eventually watch them, but so far I've collected Cosmos, Gaia, the Jeet film, and Ultra 7. Soon, I hope to start getting half of uh, RB, Jeed, Ginga, and Tiga. In the meantime, I also grabbed Gridman, as I've been watching the anime and thought watching it would be neat. The last series I also grabbed was the first couple of episodes of a little series called Common Rider. Uh, let me stop and talk about this. I, I remember that post, but it's been years, unfortunately, and I'd have to go back into the Facebook archives, ugh, or perhaps even the old Two True Freaks, uh, forums archives and see what I can find with that two true freaks board doesn't exist anymore, sadly. Um, you know, getting into Ultraman, I think your best bet besides watching the original Ultraman, the next is a great place to start because it's a standalone movie and it doesn't require you to know anything else. Um, a lot of the modern series, while they do use, uh, the Ultraman from, uh, the previous series, kind of like, I'm thinking like orb and X, and even uh, Ginga, because they use the spark dolls and the cards. I think those are okay because they are self-contained. They introduce uh, our hero and the characters that he interacts with and the world that they li live in. And the other stuff is just kind of references to it. So it's not, you don't need as much deep background. I think the Ultraman Zero movies are a fantastic place to go. Uh, especially Mega Monster Battle and um, Revenge of Belial. Saga is good also, but Saga to me is kind of like a side story almost. It's it's just a one more adventure that that Zero has, whereas those first two deal more with him as a character. You've got some great stuff here. I haven't even watched Jeed yet. I'm so far behind. I'm still trying to finish uh, uh, Orb, <laughs> but you know, unfortunately, I just don't. I I don't have the time a lot of times to, to do this stuff with the you know my my uh, responsibilities. But uh, and getting into Common Rider. That's a whole other can of worms, my friend, because there's a lot of Common Rider. And that's another one where the difference between the Showa and the Heisei Riders is, uh, means that there's, there's quite a lot of stuff to get into. And Common Rider also, like, especially on the modern side, just pick one that looks interesting or sounds interesting. And yeah, the, there may be some crossovers or stuff with some, uh, some of the other uh, riders, or it might be a preview of the next rider. Usually the series themselves are completely self-contained. So that, that's your best way to go. And I think all the Ultraman ones you've, you've picked out here, I think are all great choices. And I'd love to hear what you think of them as you get more into them. 
Uh, Robert continues, I didn't feel hindered not seeing the predecessor to Revenge of Belial and really had a lot of fun watching it. I actually feel a little prepared to start digging into the series and not necessarily chronologically. That's a very good point. You don't need to necessarily go chronologically with Ultraman. The film could be cheesy, but it was really hard not to just smile ear to ear while watching it. The song wasn't translated, but I would argue that Zero breaking into the multiverse is up there with the greatest training montages of any film. I agree. I love, I love that, that whole sequence. I really did. I think, I think Derek and I talked about that specifically that, uh, with the, the, the combination of the song and the visuals really, really did a great job and was executed very well. Um, Robert continues, I was taken aback by the sense of anticipation and readiness that spread over me while it played. It was a fantastic coincidence. I was able to hear you talk about the film while it was so fresh in my mind. I can't wait for the next Ultra episode signed Robert. Well, Robert, first off, thank you very much for writing in. And we've got some Ultraman episodes coming up this year. We're going to be continuing our look at the series. We're building up to one of my favorite episodes of the series, which is uh, My Home is Earth. We're going to be doing that. I don't think the next Ultra episode, I think the one after that, uh, which is just an all-time favorite of mine. So thank you very much for writing in. I would love to hear more about uh, how you're progress progressing through Ultraman and your thoughts on the series as you're watching them. Now, social media love for our last episode was actually wasn't the Revenge of Belial. It was Godzilla vs. Destoroya. Uh, we got likes, shares, and retweets from Professor Alan Middleton, Hobby Lighthouse, Jason Giaconetti, Siskoid, Chuck Rodriguez, Two True Freaks, Podcast Partners, Robert Ludwig, The Most Sane Man Among Us, Bob Hansen, The Hair Metal Hero Chris Tyler, Derek W. Crab, Gene Hendricks, Gene Gene The Podcasting Machine, John Vanover, Burma Gaynor, Tim Elliott, Brian Sievert, Robert Ward, Joe Rad, and Chris Mount. So if you'd like to uh, help spread the love on social media, you know, like us, share us, retweet us, whatever it is uh, that you do on Pinterest. I'm not familiar with that. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. Helps get the word out for the show, and it's always appreciated. Next time on Earth Destruction Directive, what are we going to be covering? We always have to be looking forward, never backwards. Uh, on this show, except for the many times that we look backwards by referring to when we covered stuff previously. Uh, we are going to be taking a look at one of the most hard-to-find and obscure Toho monster films of all time. We're going to be taking a look at Half Human, uh, this tale of the abominable snowman, which was banned by Toho for many years. Uh, should be very interesting to take a look at this uh, black-and-white early monster effort from Toho. We're also going to be continuing our look at the adventures of Red Ronin, so to speak, in the pages of Avengers with Avengers Volume 1, number 198. Uh, we also will have, of course, any news or developments on Godzilla King of the Monsters, the Ultraman anime, uh, the potential Pacific Rim anime, anything else that, um, you know, fits the bill here on Earth Destruction Directive. And of course, we'll as always have your feedback and email. So, uh, that's all I've got for right now. I'd like to thank everyone once again for downloading and listening. I'd like to remind everyone, Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. All are welcome here. And until next time, keep them stomping.
This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Jackanetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.